Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. How does one end up in a place some call the bioregion of Cascadia and develop their skills as a poet, publisher, and human? It might require a romance with the unexpected. That's the title of a beautiful new chapbook by Michael Daly, a transplant decades ago to our part of the world. Michael Daly was born in Massachusetts, is a graduate of the University of Massachusetts, and has an MFA from the University of Washington. He was publisher of Empty Bowl Books in Port Townsend from 1976 to 1982, and again from 2017 to 2022, though by that time it was Anacortes, yeah. His first collection of poems, The Straits, appeared in 1983, and he's published several books of poetry, translations, and a novel. He's co-curator of the Pelican Bay Books and Coffee House Poetry Reading Series in Anacortes, Washington, where he's lived since retiring from teaching English at Mount Vernon High School in 2012. Michael, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you, Paul. The new book tells us in part of how you got here, uh, but how'd you get here? <laughs> Hitchhiking. I left Boston uh, hitchhiking in the summer of um, uh, 72, which was the second hitchhiking trip I made across country, or the third if you count going both directions. I wound up uh, uh, at the end of that first trip in San Francisco as I had enough money to rent an apartment for a month in San Francisco. Rents were a lot cheaper then. And um, sort of towards, I think it was October, I happened to be living in Berkeley, and I just started to think, well, maybe I'll go north for the fall. So I stuck my thumb out and uh, started hitchhiking up the coast. And I was in stuck in, on the morning, a foggy morning outside of uh, Mendocino, and two pickup trucks stopped, one uh, the two old pickup trucks that were uh, apparently traveling together. And uh, as I'm getting into the first one with my backpack, uh, I hear somebody call my name. And I look over in the second backpack, and there's Susie Goldwitz, who was Tim McNulty's girlfriend at the time. Where are you going? I'm going up to uh, British Columbia, around the city of Victoria, to see her her friend Tim. And I thought, well, I think I'll go up there too. So we hitchhiked up to Victoria, and we hung out and Tim and uh, a couple of other friends, Tim, Hannah, and his uh, uh, later his wife, Sheila, were also living in this little place on uh, Shawnigan Lake. Long story short, we got deported uh, because uh, uh, Tim was a, uh, well, we didn't have enough money to be in, in Canada. We're getting out of, uh, out of uh, Victoria, taking the ferry from Victoria to Port Angeles, and, and it's evening, and again, we hitchhiked the three or four of us, and uh, we asked the driver, where should we go and spend the night? And he said, oh, try Port Townsend. There's a bunch of laid-back hippies there. And, uh, well, I stayed there for 15 years, and and Tim is still around that area. And um, that was 72. In 76, uh, after uh, my first season as a tree planter, Bob Blair and I uh, did the first printing of a of the first Empty Bowl book, and we we started book publishing then. Fifty years ago? Yeah, yeah. So uh, 
In fact, uh, our friends uh, Shelly and Hank are uh, going to have a 50-year celebration pretty soon. So 76, yeah, and 76 Empty Bowl will be 50 years, I guess. Immediately, I think about the kind of, you know, it's described as laid-back hippies, but there's a lot of uh, serious artists in that town. One of them's Mike O'Connor. One of them's Sam Hamill. Later, one of them is uh, Bill Porter. Uh, so there's there's a lot of very meaty literary activity when you move there. Yeah, yeah. Mike uh, was living in uh, Squim at the time, and Sam wasn't there when I arrived. Um, he came later, and Copper Canyon Press came later. Bill Ransom came later, and then uh, when Mike lived in um, uh, in China, um, in Taiwan. He came back with, with books that were empty bowl books that he and Bill Porter had published. And uh, they were empty bowl books, and so we went about distributing them. Um, I think Bill's first uh, three or four chapbooks at that time. And Mike's book, The Basin and Rain Shadow. And then you end up at the University of Washington to study. Yeah, I was... Uh, uh, long, many, many years later, I was um, in the master's program at uh, Western while I got my teaching certificate to teach in secondary schools in Washington State. I had been an artist-in-residence in the Washington State Arts Commission program for six years, visiting classrooms. And sort of towards the end of that, I thought it would be kind of nice to have my own classroom and, and be a teacher and so I, I went to get a, a teacher's license and a master's degree at the same time. And uh, I realized while I was getting the master's degree that I really wanted an MFA uh, more than a master's uh, degree. So I transferred to University of Washington, worked with uh, Heather McHugh for a while, some other great professors while I was there. And at the same time, while I was there, my son was born. And um, that was... June of 1990, I said, enough of this, I need a job. And here I am getting an MFA, and, you know, I've got to go get a job. What am I going to do? I was hired in the end of August at Mount Vernon High School and uh, didn't know what I was going to do or how to teach, and um, I started teaching a week later. You figured it out? I, well, I don't know. It's, I taught, <laughs> taught for 22 years. I don't know if I ever figured it out. <laughs> I did something anyway. <laughs> Oh, man. When I think about all those people in Port Townsend, obviously, you know, the translators from ancient China, but I also think about bioregionalism. I'm wondering what bioregionalism looked like and, and how you were able to um, discover it and tap into it and see the wisdom in it and apply it to your life. You've got this new and selected poems, this book, Re-Inhabited, that is pure a pure bioregional gesture, is it not? Yeah. The, the, well, the title, you know, um, I think re-inhabitation is a term that came about in the 70s, and yet it's not really well-known, I, I think, even among environmentalists, among poets and the literary community generally. And sometimes it's even even questioned as, uh, as, as maybe a, a, a term that uh, should be revised. Um, I consider it exactly the opposite of colonialism. Uh, I think I think it it, it it it's not imperialistic. It's not uh, a word that carries the uh, the tone of um, 
of anything but learning from the place and the civilizations that have lived in the same place that we live in now. That's pretty much been the theme of Empty Bowl for our, our, our publishing endeavors. But Empty Bowl uh, was a press that was formed by a bunch of people who were reforesters. We, almost everybody involved, worked for Olympic reforestation. Uh, our own company was our own corporation. We started around the same time in the in the in the mid 70s and um, got contracts to plant trees in the Olympics and in the Cascades. And uh, through that, I think most of us who worked on those plantations and and lived uh, in clear cuts came to understand that um, replanting is good work, is, uh, is sort of a right livelihood. We were seeing that as part of our pursuit of learning how to, how to be part of our own environment. Not only the planting and the work, but also our writing sort of took shape in, at, at the same time. Uh, many of the people on our crew, well you mentioned Mike, I mentioned Tim, Finn Wilcox, Jerry Gorson, um, all poets and, and tree planters. And so writing and planting at the same time was a, was a very common practice for all of us. So I think, you know, our, our sense of what bioregionalism uh, is, is it, it's, it's a word that, that came about from a movement that really... W the word uh, rung true with us because we were already living it, um, or understanding at least uh, that that this, that this sense of being part of the of the place and its climate um, in both work and in all of our creative endeavors was um, was worthwhile and 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 was already what we were doing. So to use to use the word bioregionalism. I think just sort of capped off uh, what we already understood. Andrew Schelling says that uh, Gary Snyder's shorthand of that is stay put and watch what happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember uh, around that time uh, Gary Snyder came to um, the Centrum readings. That's one of the things that actually that he, he, he said to, to a few of us was that um, and it was kind of about uh, living where you are rather than projecting onto the, the bigger, more global picture. Taking care of the, the, the place where you're living is the strongest effort towards environmental protection. It seems to me that the culture that we have now is the opposite of that. The culture we have now, of course, the bioregionalists said we live on this land like invaders, but we think of, you know, maybe people, uh, our kids' generation, and it's like, well, I'll try Seattle for a while. Oh, I'll try New York for a while. Oh, I'll go to Chicago. I'll go to Austin. I'll live here. I'll live there. And it seems to me that's exactly the opposite of what we need right now. Yeah. I remember I was uh, another interview. Uh, I, I was in, interviewed by a student at uh, Skagit Valley College quite a few years ago, and uh, I guess I kind of embarrassed myself because he he looked a little stunned by what I said. Um, we were talking about place, and somehow I blurted out, "You know, this is not really a place." 
this college, this campus, and I pointed out where the the uh, the hills are, where the river is. That's place. You know these these uh, geographic formations, uh, ge geologic formations that we live within. That's what we can define as as place. But you know these little structures that we've thrown up that really you know. Uh, are deteriorating faster than we can imagine. Um, you know, how often do you find a neighborhood that's exactly the same as it was 20 years ago? You know, when you go back to your neighborhood where you where you grew up, are the buildings still there, um, or, or even are the streets the same name? Uh, which you know is one of the first tactics of any totalitarian dictatorship is to come in and change all the street names. And so when you, when you have this, even when you have this uh, sensibility that you can live anywhere and you can, you know, then you're constantly changing the street names. You're constantly changing your, your own mental neighborhood and you're not taking any sense of, of uh, ownership for the place, for the ground that you're standing on, for the air that you're breathing. I remember, uh, well... Uh, also, when I was a teacher, we had uh, uh, Earth Week one year at least when uh, Tim McNulty came and, and talked as, a, as a, a representative of of conservationism in, in in our part of the state and asked students if they knew where their water came from or where their sewage goes to. Do you understand these things about your place where you live? Um, very few did, and you know it's it's just one of those almost uh, simplistic pieces of knowledge that anybody who uh, cares to understand about where they live maybe could start with. You know, where does your water come from? What phase of the moon is it? Yeah, that's, that's I think, probably the next step is, you know, when you start to get a little bit more uh, understanding about about this, the cycles of, of the planet and the universe. But, you know, how complicated can it be if you, you know, other than... Do you need to look at your at your phone to tell what time it is, <laughs> or what season it is, or what you know how close you are to the sun? <laughs> I brought with me the Dalmoma anthology. Oh, oh yeah, that's uh, that would we call that one the third and fourth issue of the Dalmoma series. The first one was uh, uh, a letterpress edition that Bob Blair and I put together after a season of tree planting and talking about it throughout tree planting. And the second one was about half that size um, that was uh, offset and uh, I was uh, kind of guided in in uh, means of production and fundraising by Sam Hamill at the time uh, for the second one. And then when we got to this one, which was, I think, 1980, for some reason we call it, we'll, we'll just lump everything that we've we wanted to put into a, a Del Muma issue uh, together in this one because it had been two or three years in between the last, uh, the previous issues. So we said, well, this will be issue three and four, and um, for some reason. <laughs> but that that cover is uh, part of a triptych by Nelson Capouillet, who was uh, a wonderful artist and good friend who lived in Port Townsend, one of the early on creative artists of Port Townsend's 
community. He was there actually before I showed up in 1970, so he'd been there for many years. So this one uh, contains uh, a number of different um, issues, I guess. There's a, a whole, the, I think the whole middle section is anti-trident uh, uh, poems and essays and uh, uh, pictures. I even have a, a little report that I wrote about uh, the, uh, the protest against the arrival of the first trident in Hood Canal. Um, there's uh, also uh, sections about, uh, uh, at that time, one of the big issues was uh, Salvadoran refugees coming to the Northwest, or coming into the United States at least, later on more so in the Northwest. Um, I think there's a section of poems about uh, homelessness. It's, uh, in a way, thematically, I suppose you'd say it's all over the place, but. I don't know. That's fine. <laughs> it was a document of the time, no question. Where is yeah. the female on the bear shit trail? Oh, yeah, that famous essay, yeah. Yep. Um, Sharon Dubiago wrote this essay that uh, really focused on um, some of the well-known writers of the time. Well, a, 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 a good part of the essay is focused on Gary Snyder, who's, uh, uh, who kind of coined the term, the poets on the bear shit trail. And... Um, or maybe that was Rex Roth who came up with that term. So Sharon was writing an essay that uh, noted that uh, it's predominantly male, or it was at that time predominantly male. Since then, we've really tried to, uh, I think, make more of a balance in all our, at least in, in as far as Empty Bowl goes, in all of our publications. Taking a note from Jaime Dangulo. Del Moma. Oh, yeah. Um, the name comes from a little song that Jaime Dangolo uh, translated. You want me to read that? Oh, one? sure. Why not? Um, there it is. So, this, I used this one in the first, well, in every, uh, there were seven Del Momas. And uh, so, this little song at Del Moma, I'm sorry, I think uh, I actually remember now that um, when Gary Snyder was at uh, Centrum, he voluntarily did a benefit reading for uh, Empty Bowl. And uh, he, off the top of his head, gave the whole etymology of the word del mo ma. Glottal stop. It has a glottal stop, a glottal click. And uh, he told the, 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 the history of the word, um, that it's a Pit River uh, Native American word. And it's primarily, as far as I understand it, just the name of a, of a place where there were, was uh, a farming community at Del Ma near the spring. I dig for turnips. At Del Ma in the evening, I turn up rotten ones. Jaime Dangulo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So you, you mentioned Andrew Schelling. He's written one of the great books about uh, the life of Jaime Dangulo and his effect on the... the um, West Coast community um, of, uh, of writers who primarily focus their work on re-inhabitation. Yeah. And Dangulo, who, um, had, uh, who taught Jack Spicer linguistics and who had Robert Duncan as his secretary. And Robert Duncan is transcribing Dangulo's work in projective verse, so 
There's, mm. there's a very big tie to West Coast poetry, and we see that through uh, Andrew Schelling's work, his wonderful book that you mentioned. You know, when I, I think of what's been happening in Washington, D.C. the last 10 years, some, some would argue a lot longer than that, does the possibility of an autonomous Cascadia look like it's, it's more likely, or is that not important? What do you mean by that? An autonomous Cascadia. I mean, you know, I, I don't really care if it becomes its own country. And sometimes I worry that if it does become its own country, then you have, you have to keep the other countries that would spring up, Dixie and Texas and what have you, away from nukes. They don't get nukes. <laughs> it might be just easier to keep the country together or maybe to add states, you know, like D.C. and Puerto Rico. But what do you think about the notion of Cascadia? Is it important to think of it as a, a, as a separate country or, not, or just as a cultural ethos? Well, Cascadia, to my mind, was was the name of this particular bioregion. A bioregion is the area that's confined by natural borders. So when the plant life changes, you're in a different bioregion. And not only plant life, but, um, of course, animals and birds and, and, and so on. And the region of Cascadia begins somewhere roughly in northern California and goes into British Columbia and goes west to the other side of the Cascades, I believe. Continental Divide, I think, is how McCloskey has it. Yeah, the Continental Divide. And so in that area, I'd say, okay, autonomy of culture, in a sense, already exists. I see like a a kind of a a divide in um, cultural perspectives where, from my focus here living in, in, in this, you know, little town with my own halfway decent view in a backyard all by myself here and, and, and my wife, I see big cities, the cultural effects of, of living in, in, in big cities as kind of put forth that sort of a divide between what is common to the artists of Cascadia and what is common to those artists who are sort of, I think, clinging to some cultural nerve that's connected to New York and... Uh, Paris and and Los Angeles, which is different, you know, it's a different kind of a, a cultural connection, I think, so that the the, the the kind of string that I see running through all of um, the cultural work in Cascadia or ca- or the or the the art of Cascadia is this dependence upon real places, wh- where you are, what you observe the connections and feelings that come about from from being planted in the, in this particular bioregion. Uh, I see that th- there's a strong push among poets and musicians and artists who are, who are not focused in that same direction to live more inside of their heads, to live more abstractly perhaps, to, uh, to um, or maybe even more privately, rather than this sense that this is a public place that we share, Cascadia, the natural world that is really conducive to the art that's being produced and that, you know, people almost take for granted of calling it a Cascadian art form. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's I, I kind of see a sort of a, a division already shaping. So to call it autonomous... I think is difficult. You know, I don't think that that uh, artists who share the same worldview 
can be autonomous. You know, I mean, they can't get away from the sense that there are artists who share the same place, who, whose whose view of, of, of the world is, is primarily cyber or is primarily uh, abstract or is primarily personal. So I, you know, I, I, I see this kind of a, of a split in, in a way, and I think that to make the sensibility of re-inhabitation primary in your, in your work doesn't work if it also separates you from people who don't do that, whose art doesn't do that. So I, I guess in a way it would be really interesting to see some kind of a collaboration rather than make a distinction between Cascadian art and non-Cascadian art, whatever that could be, might be called. Mm-hmm. What would this place look like if we were all re-inhabitants? This place would probably look very similar to the way it looks <laughs> now, the place that we're at with the airplanes going overhead. Well, uh, but, well, for but, one thing, if, it, if we were truly re-inhabitants, I wouldn't be mowing my lawn as much as I do. <laughs> yeah. I'd let it grow, you know, and, and uh, have more wildflowers out there. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what would... What, what place do you mean? What would the Northwest look like? Yeah, or Cascadia, yeah. The state of Washington. I mean, how? I mean, if we were all re-inhabitants, there'd probably be a lot fewer cars, first of all. I mean, you need a car when you're out here, yeah. where we are, yeah. you know, but... Well, you know, that's, that, that, that's an interesting thing. You know, um, there's public transportation throughout Anacortes and Oak Harbor, but there's no public transportation that goes by my road up there, Rosario which would be simple enough to do, you know. I mean, I would love to not have to drive my car into uh, Anacortes or over to Oak Harbor and just get on a, uh, a bus. But um, there's not that mentality, you know. There's not that, uh, and uh, not yet, and I think that's probably inevitable. The higher and higher the gas prices go, you know. I mean, I was over in the Olympic Peninsula, and I guess it's up to 6 bucks a gallon, here it's four fifty, and and okay, four fifty is pretty cheap now. Pretty soon we'll think four dollars is pretty cheap now, and then okay, let's just leave it at that. Remember when it was <laughs> two bucks? <laughs> I remember on a road trip when I couldn't believe in California it was two seventy five a gallon. Yeah. It's and, and that wasn't that long ago. I think that reading something from the new book, um, from the from the poem "Romance with the Unexpected." might also give us a sense of what it was like when you first came here and how you got here. Oh, so maybe the beginning? Yeah, that'd be great. First three or four pages or something? The beginning, um, well, the first part of this poem uh, starts with an older poem uh, that I I wrote while I was teaching. I wrote it for one of my classes. And then uh, I'm able to, I think, uh, comment and for some of the other poems before leading into what happened in my, or or what does happen in my memory when I think about when I came to the Northwest. Romance with the Unexpected. This is how good you are. In this room where you often appear, windows filled with swirls of river meander from glacial drip to the bay's wild crush while you lean on a windowsill and wander beyond the rooftops. In this room, where sometimes you dance, I envy your romance with the unexpected. Boughs weighted by buds jeweled in spring rain, 
sheen of goldfinch darkened on the tip of thin yew branch. And in this room, I sort through notes you drop from sometimes troubled hearts, drafts I don't promise not to steal, hold up to the light, and search for gold-tipped songbirds. That was the sincerest year. The young, undeceived by truth, left the room for a lie. Who, that age, owned the mind? I learned I must train to be patient with my hollowed-out instrument, tried to practice a slow, honest breath. The poem was a spool of silk, and as John Dewey said of a child touching flame, the burn is the original seeing. The muse was my classroom teacher, a little appalled. I was so cryptic, I wouldn't raise my hand to answer. Was that prideful? To the curl she unspooled off the tip of the poem, or her shout to the class, Who has ears to hear giants? So I stepped up, but then I awoke, and the brain as always kept talking. The feet slipped into their slippers, the hand groped for its pencil, and the eye from the sleep of fire hunted her ferocious glare. Coming into the northwest, without wind or sun, I arrive on psilocybin in a fog soup up the fjord where herons stalk what we can never know. A white stallion missing, 1972, a hazy October morning in a Pacific cove. I have already saved Sue from the pervert in a dented Lincoln who might, he said, drop her at Carson City. The hate wells up still. The next ride was the last, north, a Chevy Nova. I remember only the slow tires paddle up 101. No one knew what this was. Puget Sound, said Danny at the wheel, passing his jug of electric wine. Impossible trees along the bank vanish at their crown into what could be cloud or thickets of air where vines and mist drip on boughs, nests, the architect spider. I've been sitting here all this time, sun embedded in the same fog where chickadees invited me into the big-leaf maple where frenetic Anna's humming her wings, her beak in the hot-lip petals, and a nuthatch at the suet, where fearless ground squirrel's articulated paw poises to leap, where shadows cross the grass and a maple holds back dawn from the sea's depth pale sunlight can't touch, half of earth covered in lightless water miles deep, dark since the beginning of the world. <laughs> you know, when you read it, you can really hear the music of it, subtle. And as I read along in my copy of the book, your reading of it is exactly scored on the page. Is it important for you to have it like that? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, no, I've always uh, felt that poetry is music. And this is what I taught for years to the high school students. I taught that, you know, uh, okay, uh, period is a full stop. Comma, maybe half a stop. Line break, maybe a little quarter of a stop. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean... Denise Levertov, yeah? I guess. On the yeah. function of the line. I think, yeah. think she said exactly that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I learned it is uh, probably by reading her essays and reading uh, William Carlos Williams. Once I heard Denise Levertov read in Boston, she was only reading William Carlos Williams, <laughs> who was a big influence on her, you know, and um, she, uh, he had just died, I think, at that time. 63. Yeah. No, it would have been it would have been much it would have been maybe uh, much later than that. Yeah, but she she was just reading Williams's poems, which I thought was great. And I'm involved in a long correspondence with Dr. Williams. Yeah. And Dr. Williams, who doesn't fare very well in Sharon Dubiago's essay. <laughs> no, no. I always always wondered about that. In fact, I read Asphodel just a short time ago, thinking about her essay, and I thought, no, nah, I think she's wrong about that. I don't think that he was, I mean, she was, I think, looking at the circumstances of uh, of his um, having confessed to his wife that he was unfaithful, and then he didn't get to die. <laughs> he he lived on for several years more, uh, and, and, and the wife had to, had, to, had to see him there every day, knowing that uh, he'd confessed that he was unfaithful. There's a lot of truth in what she's saying about... Uh, about him um, being uh, maybe just an asshole towards his his wife, but uh, I still find Asphodel a beautiful poem. Incredibly but, gorgeous poem. Yeah. Incredibly gorgeous, and you know if if what happened ends in an apology like that, then you <laughs> yeah. know you have to you have to um, you have to think that maybe it wasn't wasn't so bad. But I wouldn't want to be in the part of Flossie. There's a refrain in that poem that you start with, the very first line of the poem, and it comes up especially a lot at the end. This is how good you are. Yeah. Yeah, originally that was the title of the poem, and I I tried it on several people. What do you think of the title of this? And they all went, Ooh, that's awful. <laughs> vomit. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> your, your face explained it all. <laughs> so I had to give in and say, oh, okay, what... What should I do? And uh, Finn Wilcox, in fact, suggested the, the the line that's on the at the beginning, "Romance with the Unexpected." Um, but yeah, uh, so this is how good you are shows up at the at the end as a refrain that I think you know when I again I read it earlier today. I read the whole poem. A lot of things kind of get repeated and thrown around, and and then and then show up later on in the poem, and that's and that's one of them. So I I like the way that that came out. Are you suggesting I should read that part, or did you want to hear that? Well, you did You did record it all yeah, today, yeah, so we're going to have the recording, which yeah. is great. But, um, but taking our time to talk about that, there's so many things that come out of um, that. First of all, how good are you? That would be one question. This is how oh. good you are, you're saying. Well, the one thing that, that I think follows that refrain is that Nobody comes off as being good or better in in the poem. Um, 
what follows the refrain is always an example of people just doing ordinary things, some of which are reprehensible, some of which are okay. But, you know, this um, this is how good you are, I think, in, in many ways is uh, uh, sarcastic, uh, uh, but, but is never meant to be, uh, to me, to be super critical. But, I mean, but it could be a, a mark of a quest for individuation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. How good you are is as good as um, as the whores on the street that you don't give money to. Uh, as good as the people who are unmasked in the urinals of the shopping centers and the malls under the ground is as good as this peleated woodpecker who's pecking at this tree. How good you are is no better, no worse than, than anyone, anything. And yes, you're an individual, but you don't get to individuate by making yourself better. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. And I, and I take from the title, Romance with the Unexpected, I take uh, an appreciation for negative capability, an appreciation for um, having an intention and allowing yourself to be guided by a higher force. These are some of the things that come to me when I see that title and then when I read the poem. Well, I also have to tell you, the the line, this is how good you are, came from my last year of teaching a poetry class at Montverne High School. I had a group of students who were extremely shy, who could, just the, the shyest group of high school students I've ever taught who would not read their poems aloud. And at the end of it, I said, this is how good you are. And I, I gave them that, those first lines in that, in that poem, uh, just trying to describe that I steal your line I steal your line sometimes <laughs> <laughs> thank That's you very much you and now I retire <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there was graffiti on the bathroom walls about you after that <laughs> I wrote that <laughs> does the music of Bill Evans make everything better I love to hear Bill Evans yeah Right. And and while I was writing that, that was a time when I was listening to him more and more um, than I have. And uh, so I got to hear him live a couple of times in Boston. And um, I also wrote a, a much longer poem. Uh, it's in my first book, The Straits, that's uh, about Bill Evans uh, playing piano, and um, which is in here. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it does. It uh, his, uh, his music, especially his solo uh music really cheers me up what about the scott lafaro era i don't know that his bassist who died tragically in a car wreck that was before you would have seen him in boston yeah would have been the 50s but yeah really killed him i mean i mean it really killed his spirit to have scott die like that but the, the, those rec- i think there was one record at the village vanguard and uh, that is uh-huh. they had a they had a simpatico no question about it how did art shape your being can you? I, I mean, it might be hard. It's. It would be. I guess I would have to think about the time that I wasn't writing to think about a lack of being an artist in my life. So, you know, for you who've been writing longer than I have, it probably is even much more difficult to think of what life was before you were a writer. But to think about how it shaped your life, I think, uh, is an interesting. Is something I'd like to know the answer. Well, I think I. St- 
as far as art goes, um, wh- you know, when I was a kid, I didn't write poetry. Uh, it wasn't encouraged. In fact, um, it would have been discouraged uh, in schools, in the public school I went to. Um, if anybody who knew that I wrote poetry, they would have called me a sissy, all, all of those things. It never even occurred to me until I was like in my 20s, I think, to write a poem. But I did draw. Um, I paid close attention to, uh, I, I did a lot of sketches. And in high school, I was called upon to, to make some some sketches and some other art artwork. But when I did start writing poetry, uh, so I kind of, I guess what I'm saying is I kind of moved in my adolescence, or even pre-adolescence, I moved from uh, this ability to uh, put down what I was envisioning of the world through sketches and through music as I listened and, and, and played some piano at the time. I moved to that towards poetry. And, uh, and, and also prose. I was writing stories, too. But when that happened, when I was uh, at a point where poetry became more and more important to me, uh, which was early 20s, I never stopped. You know, I mean, I, I couldn't think of it. I couldn't think of the world in any other way except through uh, the process of, of writing down what was not even what was in my head, not even what I was thinking about, what was just coming out. You know, I, I've always, uh, n- not only, but always um, had the process of unconscious writing. And uh, not that I think that much of that is, is, is worth saving, but I, I uh, a lot of the poems uh, that I've been able to, to write now, later on in life, uh, I think employ the same process of unconscious writing but it's much much more refined than it was when I was when I was young so throughout my entire life I think I've I've gotten to a point where I, I'm able to focus so that when I do actually sit down and write something that's it you know I, I do revise I do rework something but you know when I write it that's what I wanted to say and and I've had my say uh, it's taken me um, well, you said 50 years from when I entered uh, um, Port Townsend, and uh, I was probably writing about uh, uh, okay. I was probably writing okay about uh, five years before that or so. So, yeah, and when I was in college, I did this herky-jerky kind of writing. You know, I, I think when you start writing poetry, um, you have to imitate. And uh, and translation helps as well. Those those I think those two wings are very important for anybody who's beginning to write poetry is imitation and translation. So I I did both. Um, I was <laughs> I signed up in college for a Dante class and and I didn't realize until I sat down that it was for Italian majors only and the whole thing would be conducted in Italian. <laughs> and I had taken Italian when I was in in the seminary, but I wasn't fluent. And the professor had a kind of a hard time even allowing me to, to sit there because I would start my little yak about the the cantos in minuscule Italian and then I'd quickly break into it, blurt something out in English and I'd, I'd, I'd take over the class in English for a long time and all these Italian majors looking at me like, when is this guy going to shut the <laughs> fuck up? <laughs> hey, <But> mangia la cazzo! <laughs> <laughs> But I did manage, at that time when I was also 
learning to read poetry by reading uh, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, um, I, I did learn, I, I was also translating the Paradiso. And, uh, you know, that's where I was when I was like 21, 22 or something. So my own poems that were coming out around that time were very bad. And then I wrote one that I thought, that's a, that's a real poem. That one was a real poem. I've got it somewhere. It's not in this book. <laughs> but it's amazing how that one poem can have you coming back. You know, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I, I can't give this up. I, I, I scratched the surface of something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What do you hope that people will get out of your work, out of your poetry, out of the books you published, out of the readings cur- that you curate, out of all of it? Joy. I hope people enjoy it. You know, I mean, I, I don't expect to enlighten anybody or change the world or anything. I just, I think that uh, if somebody reads a poem, like for instance, if somebody were to read the entire Romance with the Unexpected and put it down and said, oh, that's delightful, that'd make my day. We read it in the woods. We read it at Staircase. Oh. And right. I, I read it to my honey. Oh. Well, the, the kid was still in the sleep in the sleeping bag in the tent or, or when she was out with other kids. And, uh, you know, that last... Well, the last few pages where that becomes a refrain. I, I noted it at the end how many times I put a little mark. I hated writing in this book, but I made little marks. This is how good you are by habit <laughs> bent toward moist, moist, moist sunlight. This is how you, good you are within the human voice, imperfect in its misery. And so far, look at that alone, five, six times that comes up. So like there's a litany. Yeah. There's a, yes, exactly. Ex- said better than I can say. See, when you, when you tell me that, that's that's all the reward I, I would ever have hope for, you know, is that uh, you liked it. It was good. It was enjoyable. It was stunningly good. And it made me want to come up here and interview you. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Would you like to end by reading a different poem? I could, yeah. You, you mentioned something about a, a uh, what was the word you used? Signature poem. Yes. And I don't have a signature poem, but I do have a poem that I really like. (laughs) That is probably one of the last poems that that I wrote for this collection. It came about from reading... What was I reading? I forget the book I was reading now. Last year sometime, I became acquainted with uh, the writer and diplomat Isaiah Berlin... And the other character in this book is Akhmadova. And I, I got a little bit to, to know about how they met. So this is called The Gift of Companionship He Brought Her. The young Isaiah Berlin, then a diplomat at Britain's Moscow embassy, exile since childhood from Leningrad, journeyed there on pretext a hunt for books by cherished authors. Not to visit the city, formerly Petrograd, but to meet the poet, the voice of Russians who suffered alongside her, exile inside the state of Stalin, Akhmatova, who, gracious in poverty, had only potatoes to offer the foreign dignitary, Her husband buried, son sentenced, both in Siberia. She was alone but for the lurk of a female informant 
and her poems bereft of listeners except the microphone strapped and undisguised into her ceiling's dust and shadows. Meeting her, Berlin acknowledged, was the most thrilling thing that has, I think, ever happened to me. What I can't reason out is why his word thrilling shocked my emotions over these two Cold War strangers hunched at a table in a dark flat so powerfully I nearly wept. Was it her regal nod when she read for him her destroyed poems in the squalid pre-dawn haze? This voice of a people who forgot her, silenced on a blacklist of one, poet whose tongue would not be removed, but who, guardian of her own memorized body of work, to be rescued in spills of ink, bequeathed to some wild violin her horror and despair. There they sat, all night long, a man and a woman, two exiles met in their own birthplace, quietly speaking of poetry. So you should have that. Thank you very much. Thank you for this this book and for this time. Yeah, for, for that thank poem. You, Paul. you know, I think about what's going on right now with Putin and Ukraine, and it's it's so current and prophetic. And um, I'm grateful for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for for doing this. Um, I, uh, I and I really appreciate what you said about uh, about romance with the unexpected. It's that's great. <laughs> Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, Located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at CascadiaPoeticsLab.org.